Almost done. There. Hey, it's Wade from Inversitaski. When I get done working on an important document, I kick back and listen to Player Missile. Now where's that spreadsheet? It's October 1981. This episode we're going to look at Missile Command by Rob Zadibble and talk a little bit about the arcade game Missile Command and Super Missile Attack by General Computer Corporation, the hack that led to Food Fight and Quantum, as well as Miss Pac-Man. Covering Byte Magazine, Part 2 of Deire Atari serialization is in there, and I'm adding a new magazine to the coverage, Micro, the 6502 Journal. Also, a summary of my trip to the Atari party, lots of feedback and listener-written programs for this episode, and I have my first contributor to the podcast, Michael Glazer, who will be taking over Softside Magazine. This is the Player Missile Podcast, I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 13. Welcome back to the Player Missile Podcast. I am back from the Atari party. The Atari party was May 2nd, 2015, up in Davis, California. So I drove up from the Bay Area. It's about a two-hour drive. First thing I noticed when I got to Davis is there were bicycles everywhere. They had great bike lanes and wide streets. Very bike-friendly place. I drive up to the library. They had just racks and racks of bike rack, bike locking areas. So you get there as early as 10 to set up, but I didn't, I didn't make it up there until closer to 11. And a lot of people had set up already. And, you know, so I walked in to kind of check out the space. And as you walk up to the library, it was in sort of this room in front. Well, I mean, it was attached to the library, but it was um, sort of in, before you go into the main section of the library, you know, like through the little electronic gate gizmos where you, they check to make sure you've checked out the books. If you take a left right there, there's this big room. It was probably, oh, I don't know, 4,000 meters by 1,500 femtometers I don't know, my metric's a bit off. It was about maybe 30 feet wide and 60 feet long in imperial units. And a bunch of people had already set up. They had some folding tables and stuff. So, uh, so yeah, so I, as I walked in, I saw that there was this... this um, had like, it was like a little party room, I guess, that had a refrigerator and a sink and stuff. And Bill Kendrick, the organizer, had laid out a whole bunch of donuts for all the, the volunteers. So that was nice of Bill. I did snag a donut. And then I saw somebody who kind of looked like it might be Bill. I introduced myself, and uh, it turns out, indeed, it was Bill. So I was, it was nice to meet him. I had exchanged emails for a while, and he's contributed lots of feedback to the podcast. So it's nice to meet him. He was my, the first listener I, I ever met. So, hey, Bill. But yeah, so he helped me get organized a little bit, and he pointed out some space. And so I, I got a folding table and found some space to set up my... I brought a Raspberry Pi and this little homebrew controller that I made. And um, there's some pictures and stuff on the on the Atari Party website that I'll include a sh- link in the show notes to. I actually brought a whole second Raspberry Pi and a second monitor and stuff in case he needed more stuff, but it turns out they had plenty of, of stuff to demo, so I only set up one. There were tables set up on the three of the walls. Both the long walls had tables just all the way up them, and one of the short walls is the, was where you entered, and so there was tables on the left side of the door. And then in the middle, there were rows of tables. There were probably was it three rows of you know these fold-out tables that are probably, I don't know, six six feet long on each table. And so there are probably two systems set up on each table. And so, yeah, 
there were a lot of systems anyway. And as I was setting up, I saw uh, another kind of Raspberry Pi setup that looked familiar, and I went over, and it was Rex Allison, who was a listener to the podcast, and he had emailed me previously that he'd built this this Raspberry Pi MAME emulator, and so he showed it to me, and it was, uh, yeah, it was really, it's really cool. It's kind of, from his email and the pictures he sent me, it kind of gave me the inspiration that I, to build my own little homebrew controller, which doesn't look nearly as good as his. <laughs> Mine was kind of thrown together and, you know, it's solid, but it's not really pretty to look at. So he uh, also had, he wrote this interface in, in Python, which was cool. And so I've, I've, uh, <laughs> I begged him to send it to me and, and he, he did. So I'm going to hopefully get a chance to hack with that and put it on my system. But yeah, so it was cool. I met uh, two listeners, you know, Bill and, and Rex. And so it was nice to talk to people who listen to the podcast and Rex even gave me some feedback. He said he said he was going to email it to me, but since he saw me there, he'd just tell me. <laughs> he said uh, he really enjoys the technical stuff, and um, he said that's one of the things that he doesn't hear a lot of people doing is, is you know, where I had kind of looked at some of the games and, you know, this playlists and kind of poked into the inner, inner workings of the games a little bit, and he said he really enjoyed that, and, um, yeah, I couldn't get enough of that. So I, and I agree, I really like that stuff. I'm... It's really fun. I kind of brings me back to the days of when I was doing the Atari programming. You know, looking at analog, looking at all the, you know, the machine language listings in analog, and just kind of dreaming that I could one day build an arcade game. But anyway, it was it was great meeting him and talking to him. And I uh, now look forward to California Extreme because I think there's some some of the folks I met there are going to be back at California Extreme, the arcade game show here in um, San Jose in the in July. And maybe by California Extreme, I'll have some swag made up for the Player Missile podcast because. I know the Antic guys sent a bunch of stuff. They sent a bunch of um, little cards. But yeah, it'd be nice to make up something for the Player Muscle Podcast. My my wife actually made a nice little stand and put the logo and stuff on it, and I, so I set it up by my machine. It was very nice of her to give me the weekend day just to drive up. You know, I spent the whole day up there, and so I do appreciate that. Yeah, my wife is awesome. So I got my system all up and running and, you know, put my little my little Player Muscle Podcast logo that my wife made up there next to it and started up. And then pretty much at noon, people started to come in. As they entered, the first thing they saw were, were there was a bunch of Amigas on the right-hand side, which I thought was appropriate, you know, because the Amiga being the really the spiritual successor to the 8-bit computers. There were a couple of Amigas from, I think guys from Oregon, actually, drove all the way down. And then as you went down that right-hand side, there was Dan Kramer, who was a former Atari employee, who was one of the guys who developed the trackball controller. So he had a whole bunch of stuff there. He had a, actually a, I don't know what you call it, it was like a mock-up, I guess, of a, one of the arcade trackballs. It was big. It was it was probably I don't know thirty five kilometers in diameter. You know I don't I, you know I'm not, I'm new at this metric stuff. It's funny I did all the you know I did all the calculations in metric for you know engineering and stuff, but I have, I don't have a real physical sense of what what all these units are. I mean no, it was probably I don't know it was fifteen centimeters in diameter. I mean it was it was pretty big. Was it like six inch trackball? And I guess that was one of the they used in like the original missile command and like ten yard fight those kind of football games. And then he had his 5200 trackball and his little home-built built trackball. And next to it was a, a sign that said, World Premier 2015 Three-Button Missile Command for the Atari 8-Bit Computers. And uh, the, the 2015 threw me. I, I went up to him and I asked him, so did uh, the Drobs of Dibble find the source code? Is this, you know, this is available now? And he said, no, no, this is, this is back in the, when he actually wrote it. This is like 81, that Robs of Dibble had this version where it was a three-button missile command, but he would only give it to you if you built your own controller. So you had to put your this effort into it to build your own trackball controller. And when you did that, you would personalize this game and give you a copy of it. So the the track screen for this version of missile command said, like, DK's missile command. 
Dan Kramer's Missile Command. So in some way, I, I was kind of, you know, it's, it's impressive, but I was kind of disappointed. I was like, oh man, I wish, wish I could, I would love to see some of the source code of some of these games, you know, that were written by the Atari people. But uh, I'm sure all that stuff, or most of it anyway, is, is probably lost. But as we'll see later on, yeah, Missile Command is the game I'm going to review in this episode. And it, 8-Bit Games are a really high-quality port of the arcade game. So con- continuing the walk around, there's a guy named Conrad from, again, I think from Oregon or, or Southern Washington, who has a whole bunch of 8-Bit stuff. And some, you know, all the IDE interfaces for uh, the cartridges and stuff. And then just had a whole big collection of cartridges. And I had a, a TT there, which I'd, I... I've seen a TT before. I haven't seen a Falcon before. And I don't remember that... I don't think there was a Falcon there. I don't recall. There's so much Atari stuff that I was, like, kind of overwhelmed. But then as you come back to the middle aisles, all the tables setting up in the middle, there were 5200s, 2600s, a bunch of STs. had some Lynxes. And there was an NES playing Atari games. And then back on the back wall, I guess this is the, as we're coming back towards the front of the room where you entered, it was Rex Allison's main machine and some other handheld stuff, the links. And then in the corner was a Tempest arcade cabinet. Mark Birshing from uh, the California Extreme brought one up. So I had to go with that. That was fun. Uh, yeah, Tempest is one of my favorite arcade games. It's one of those that I remember where the arcade game was, you know, the position of the room in, in the arcade that I used to go to all the time. So as you walked in the, this arcade, you'd kind of the door was kind of at this funny angle in the middle of the room. And you'd walk in, and then you'd, you'd kind of take a right to get in there, and the Tempest would be like straight ahead in the middle of, in the middle aisle. One of the things I wish I had taken pictures of that arcade because I, even though I, I think I remember where everything was, it still would have been fun to actually see what it was like. Continuing to walk around, when you go to the left side of the room now, there's windows all along all along this left side, and on the tables that set up, Bill had set up all the, the static displays, and so he had just a bunch. First of it was a bunch of magazines. And I looked through them all, which is really fun to look through because, you know, I'm doing my research on magazines through the PDFs on the t- uh, archive.org. But to actually pick up these magazines and just flip through them, it's just, it just great. It's just to have all these. And again, if anybody happens to have magazines they'd like to temporarily loan to the podcast, I would certainly take you up on that. But uh, no pressure. Might be Bill that I'm asking. <laughs> so he had, uh, particularly the one I was interested in was Softside. I had never seen a soft side, or I don't remember one anyway, back then. And then seeing one here, they actually, the he had issues starting, I think, at issue 40-something. And the layout and the formatting of the magazine was much more professional than the ones that I w- had been looking at. So I think somewhere, and I think as it turns out, it's this episode covered in this very podcast, they switched to this newer formatting. It was much more consistently formatted and kind of laid out a little bit better. And, um, you know, they had each... Each platform had its own section now in the table of contents rather than just kind of everything mashed together. But there's a lot of other other magazines I was like, like the uh, Micro, the 6502 Journal. What the heck? Maybe I'll cover it this episode. He also has some APX catalogs, which are fun to look through. The one that I remember, he had the had a picture of Getaway on the cover, and that's going to be one of the first games I cover in the 1982 series of episodes. Had a bunch of analogs, and I still, I'm still kicking myself that I can't find my analogs. Man. I hope I didn't give them away when I sold my ST. And I think I probably gave the ST logs away, which is ah, it's a bummer. Had a couple issues of the High res magazine, which is that really short-lived, I think, four issues. But yeah, a really great collection of, of Atari magazines. And continuing on that, on the very far corner, there was a 7800 setup, Bill's system. And he had a whole bunch of 7800 cartridges. I'd never really played much of the 7800, so it was cool to watch people do that. So yeah, you know, new when people started showing up, it was pretty crowded. There were people at every system there was there were never really there was never an open system for any more than you know for more than a minute or something and then somebody would take take their place and just play with it. i 
on my own system, it was not very intuitive. So I was kind of standing around helping people mess with the controls and stuff. And I had to, I had to get down to the Linux uh, bash prompt a couple times to fix a few things. And so <laughs> I didn't have a lot of time to test it because I spent so much time trying to build that, that controller. But um, I had stuff from Stella, the 2600 emulator, and the 8-bit machines, and I had a couple arcade game uh, ROMs running on um, MAME for All, which is a sort of Raspberry Pi optimized version of MAME. I had Jumpman up there quite a bit, and so a lot of people were playing that. Right at the end of the Atari party, I put on Adventure, and people were playing. And uh, one guy, like, really, as everybody was closing down, sat down and, and navigated this thing and found the little Easter egg, found the little dot. And probably the, it was the final image on my computer before I shut it down was the Easter egg where it has Warren Robinette's name. There were a lot of prizes donated. So Bill spent, it was probably a good 15 minutes just like going through the raffle stuff. And it was a free raffle that he offered. So people would get tickets and they'd throw their tickets into a pile. One for like general interest stuff, one for ST stuff, uh, one for other thing, 8-bit stuff. And there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'd, I donated a Raspberry Pi. Another guy donated a Raspberry Pi. Um, I gave away a couple um, USB to DB9 joystick controllers. Kevin Savitz donated a couple of his books, Terrible Nerd, all sorts of stuff. And then at 5 p.m., the library closed down, and we had a half hour to get everybody out. So <laughs> it was a madhouse folding up tables, cleaning everything up, helping people get you know bring stuff to their cars. And afterwards, some of the people said they were going to go to, um, oh, shoot, it's a burger place in Davis. Now I can't remember the name of it. But I was like him and on. I'm such an introvert that I was like not really saying much, you know, not really get involved and so everybody got in their cars and left and i was like this close from just like going someplace and eating by myself and i was like ah i should go i'll i'll make an appearance and i'm glad i did i i got a chance to talk to some guys and you know just got over my little shyness a little bit and um and there i'd i'd seen this guy around but i I didn't really talk to him during the show and i i remembered him i remember seeing him from uh the portland retro gaming expo he sat right in front of me when um the Bob Smith, Gary Kitchen, David Crane, Rob Zadibble, Todd Fry panel happened. And it turns out it's Maurice Molyneux, who, he's a columnist for STLog. And so we chatted for a while, and I, I uh, hopefully I'll have him on for an interview at some point, because I would like to do an ST kind of one-off episode at some point. But yes, there are probably eight of us, I guess, that went to this um, burger place and had, you know, had dinner and stuff. And uh, it was just fun talking. I sat next to Dan Kramer, and he was talking about the book... Um, business is fun and and <laughs> i happen to have the electronic version on my phone and so we were looking up the places that he was referenced in the book but yeah all in all it was a great time and i am looking forward to next year's event i guess closer is uh, the california extreme the arcade show i expect to see a bunch of people there there a lot of people are talking about going to california extreme so i'll be there probably the sunday because the saturday is part of kansas fest and so i'm going to go to kansas fest for the i think tuesday through saturday and then Sunday, I'll swing by California Extreme as I return. So it was a lot of fun. I recommend you go if you're uh, in town <laughs> in the past or uh, next year, whenever he has it again. But I'm sure I will certainly have details of it next time. And I'm sure, you know, Bill Kendrick does a, his uh, modern segment on the Antic podcast. So I'm sure he'll announce it there. And he's on Twitter as well. So there's plenty of ways to get references for uh, next year's Atari party. But keep it tuned here. And I will certainly have updates for the 2016 Atari party. All right, let's do a little feedback. Got a lot of feedback, actually, from the last episode. First from, from Craig Abertsetzi. said, Hey, Rob, I enjoyed the podcast very much. Had my tires from 81 to 89, and I ran the Alcatraz BBS. But I do have a little bone to pick with you. You mentioned that pirating killed the Atari. Uh, this I do agree. However, let's keep in mind, 
Commodore pirating was just as bad, and in many cases, much worse. I think Commodore created the zero-day pirated software. This fact is glossed over a lot because the volume of Commodores in the wild at the time was at least 3 to 1 to Atari. I just ask that you make it clear that we weren't the only ones doing the pirating. It just so happened that our market share was much less than Commodore. That fact, in conjunction with the pirating problem at the time, killed the Atari. And keep up the good work. And I sent him some email back. And I absolutely agree that uh, the small market share plus the piracy is what turned the Atari market into toast. So, you know, as I go on the podcast, I've kind of condensed my my phrasing over time. So, as I said to him in email, it's like when I say piracy killed the Atari market, it's sort of my mental shorthand for saying that there's a whole bunch of stuff that happened. Like, there's constraints in the initial design and the high system cost as a result of, like, the FCC-mandated shielding and coupled with the just huge number of dumb marketing decisions sort of doomed the hardware and sales numbers and then the cherry on top of the piracy really killed the market. Killed it dead. So, but yeah, but clearly it wasn't just us. I mean, I remember pirating software before I even got an Atari on the Apple. Stuff would, you know, go around at school or, you know, visit a friend's house with an Apple and I'd get a disc and copy it over. And even though I didn't have an Apple, I still had the disc. And so it, at school when the teachers weren't watching, I was popping the Apple disc and play Sabotage or, you know, whatever. There's a scramble light game for the Apple II that I'm trying to remember the name of that I can't. I remember it was one of the first games I played as well. I just remember because it used both buttons on the Apple joystick, you know, one for firing forward and one for dropping bombs. I can't, I can't remember the name of that. So if anybody knows an early, like, scramble night game for the Apple II, send me some feedback. But yeah, but, you know, continuing with the piracy theme, um, Doug Carlston of Broderbund Software was interviewed, uh, Antic Podcasts, interview number 40. And his theory was that piracy was a small impact, mostly because the pirates probably wouldn't have purchased the software anyway. And he said... He thought that the early era of uh, CD games gave a real clue as to the piracy numbers and how it really impacted the market because um, at the time when the CDs were first released, they couldn't easily be copied. And so he said that they saw a sales increase during the CD time, but it was not even not even double. It was, you know, he said it might be one and a half times what they normally had. So... I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's something like that. You know, it wasn't, certainly wasn't like 10 times or, you know, all those sort of dire warnings that the software industry had at the time. It was not that big. So that's the closest I've heard from, you know, somebody actually in the business at the time as to what the actual numbers were of, of software being pirated. I mentioned in the last episode, uh, sorting. And so Bill Kendrick of the Atari party sent me a, a link to a cool YouTube video of uh, a visual and audio sort of a visualization of a sorting algorithms. It's like a bunch of different sort, sorting algorithms and they, they show the sort happening and then they tie some musical cues to it. And so the, the radix sort is my favorite sound. And it sounds like this. Got some feedback from Bill Lang, who said, Hi Rob, you mentioned in episode 12 that double-sided quad-density floppies never came to the Atari 8-bits. And I actually had two double-sided quad-density five-and-a-quarter drives hooked up to my Atari using the ATR-8000 from SWP. I believe they were TAC drives, but I don't remember for sure, and I still have a stack of the double-sided quad-density diskettes that I can no longer read. Oh, sorry you can't read those anymore. But yeah, I totally forgot about the ATR-8000. And that was a device you could plug in sort of standard disk. You know, you didn't have to get the A10 drives with all the fancy controller stuff. It had the controller hardware built in. But not only could you do five and a quarter, you could do eight inch discs, and it had a printer port in it. And I'll include a link to this is 
future time scale in the podcast timeline, but there's an Antic Magazine preview of the ATR-8000 that I'll include a link in the show notes about. But yeah, I totally forgot about that ATR-8000. And Wade from Inversitaski also mentioned that the XF-551 was a 360K drive, although it was uh, it was double-sided dual density. It wasn't a quad density. But yet, the, yeah, you could still get 360K without having to change disks. Although I guess, you know, the quad density I guess I was talking about was the um, the single-sided quad density, so that would be 360K per side. Kevin Savitt sent me some feedback in various ways on Twitter and email. He said uh, he enjoyed the flight simulator reviews. And, yep, thanks, Kevin. We'll have part two at some point here shortly when uh, when Chris gets more settled in his new job. And he sent me a link to a couple more civilian sims and another air traffic control sim. And he mentioned, have you seen my site? flightsimbooks.com, and I had not, so I will include a link to that. There's a whole bunch of books that have uh, the detail sort of, you know, this historical era of flight simulator software. Got 21 flight simulator books as I record right now. From Paul Nermanen of the Intellivisionaries podcast and various other podcasts like Intari Visions. I think he's starting up another one as well. That's a busy dude. But uh, yeah, as if it wasn't hard enough to edit the uh, 84-hour Intellivisionaries episodes. But anyway, Paul says, uh, you mentioned very at- various Atari Silver Box kits on your last episode. I recall then one of my childhood friends got his Atari 400 for Christmas of 81. He also got the Entertainer Bundle. The version he got included two CX-40 joysticks, two games, uh, Atar- uh, Star Raiders, and Missile Command. And for whatever reason, his Star Raiders cartridge was labeled Star Raider, without the S. And uh, Paul says he still has that, so that's pretty cool. Must be a collector's item, a misprinted logo. And Paul goes on, uh, there were later versions of the Entertainer that included Star Raiders and Pac-Man. And he sent me a link to some pictures of the kits, which I will include in the show notes. And Paul goes on again and says, if uh, memory serves, he also got the Educator Kit, which, as you mentioned, included the 410 Program Recorder, Basic, and States and Capitals. And he may have also gotten that Programmer, but I can't say for sure. And he says, anyway, love the podcast, and thanks again for doing it. Yeah, well, thanks, Paul. And um, yeah, thanks for sending his feedback. And I've said before, he composed a track called Treasured that he uses for the theme of the podcast. And other themes he's composed and bumpers and sound bites that he does. Some great music there. Yeah, it's a it's a very professionally done podcast that they have. So yeah, I listen to it even though I've like I said I've, I've played in television exactly one time in my in my life. And uh, but it's still it's a fun podcast to listen to. So go listen to that one and some other podcasts. I've listened to the UER podcast, the Unhandled Exception Report, which is a podcast out of the UK where they talk about Linux and some of the. Just like ways to use old hardware and continue to use it in in this current age. I think they produce it on Linux as well. But anyway, in their latest episode, they um, mentioned the podcast here, and so I they did a ten questions segment, which I guess Andy was the subject of the ten questions the last time, and uh, it was asked when asked him about the favorite what, what games he liked, and he said Quasimodo was his favorite game on the eight bit. So I uh, dug out my emulator and uh, fired up Quasimodo and sent him a, the Quasimodo ringtone from the the theme music, which is which is quite good. That ringtone plus others are available in the download section of playermissile.com. So if you have interest in Linux and stuff, that's a nice podcast to check out. Also, just as I'm recording this, the Coco Crew podcast was announced, and episode zero is out. It's a their introductory episode of, of um, on the Coco, which I think this might be the first Coco podcast. I, I'm not plugged into the Coco scene at all, but the uh, first one I've heard about anyway. So 6809 machine that I know absolutely zero about, so I'm looking forward to listening to this podcast. And kind of finding out some more of this system. And just as this podcast goes to press, I got an 
An email from Siegfried Lentz, a friend of the show, said, Hi, Rob. I very much enjoyed the Flight Simulator episode and your pilot co-host. Coming from a flying family and having been around airplanes all my conscious life, Flight Simulators didn't spark my enthusiasm for aviation, but the family aviation background ensured that I did not have to ask too hard to get Flight Sim software when it came out. I vividly remember the anticipation it built up before Flight Simulator 2 became available on this side of the Atlantic. My best friend and I got one copy each, and I remember both the awe for the depth of the simulation and the slight letdown for the performance. It's much easier to land a real plane than uh, FS2 Skyline at 5 frames per second. It's like, really? Wow. <laughs> easier to land a real plane? Wow. It, it, definitely, it was definitely hard to line up the stuff, you know, the sort of the yaw controls to line up with the aircraft, or to line up with the runway. I always found pretty difficult. So back to Siegfried. He said, I think there are two civilian sims you missed. There's Jumbo Jet Pilot by Thorn EMI. And actually, yeah, Chris and I, we didn't get a chance to play that one, but we will review that one. And the other one is Final Flight by MMG. And I have not heard of this one, so I'll have to look that one up. He continues, looking forward to military sims. I remember spending countless hours flying through all missions. And thanks to the great podcast. Still can't figure out how to follow your crazy colleagues at Antic, who seem to be pumping them out real time. <laughs> They're putting some serious effort in the interviews, and so it's a it's a great service to the community. All right, let's talk about some listener written programs. So one from Bill Kendrick, he wrote a program called Tank Action, which is basically combat in action. He's got a nice rep- web page about it. So he's he says he's trying to dust off the cobwebs in my brain regarding coding in action, and then kind of learning about player missile graphics and other stuff. So he's got a nice, really nice web page detailing sort of the steps he went through and um, kind of the you know, his thought process in designing some of the stuff. And he's got a bunch of commented action source code, which, you know, as I look through here, it looks, it's, um, it's really easy to read. I mean, action is for the speed you get compared to basic. It's, a uh, it's not that much different than, you know, other procedural language like Pascal or C or something, but just a, a huge speed improvement over basic. So yeah, nice demo. If you're, if you're interested in action programming, you should check this out. And another listener written program, the, um, Atari age high score club. This is, Season 12, uh, number 8. Atari uses the real Bounty Bob, who's Jason Kendall in real life. His program, Ramp Rage, is now the subject of this this latest challenge. So I've played it. It's, it's, it's quite hard. There's a lot going on. It has a lot to figure out. So uh, it, you need a little time investment to get it going. But there's a lot of activity about this. So uh, yeah, check out the... I'll put a link in the show notes to this round. Yeah, and if, if you're interested at all in playing 8-bit games, it's fun to play them in this group like this because you know, it keeps you motivated to play. And you know, like, a lot of the problems I have reviewing the games, I don't... It's just, it's hard to get myself motivated to play the game. And a lot of the delay in these podcast episodes is just like, is the game review. It's not so much that the, the magazines are that hard, but it's just hard to get into the game enough. But I guess through, through the feedback he's getting in this um, round, he's going to then release a final version to the wider Atari Age community. So if you're interested in checking out the sort of pre-release game, yeah, go to the um, round eight version here. And I'll, yeah, again, I'll include a link to the show notes. Onto the meme section of the, ca- of the podcast. I have not made a lot of progress in the meme. I haven't made any progress, really, in the meme cabinet itself. Although, you know, I did build that controller for the Atari party. And so that at least got me using the um, iPack, which is that keyboard encoder that you attach arcade controls to. So I do have a little more experience in that and kind of programming that a little bit. But I've not made a lot of progress. Yeah, again, I haven't made any progress in the cabinet itself. So my, uh, my good friend Neil from Scotland is coming to town here in the next week or so, and hopefully he's going to be able to help me a little bit build the main cabinet. So maybe I'll get that finished before the next podcast is out. Let's talk some tech. This will be kind of short because I haven't made any progress in either Star Raiders or Jumpman. So, yeah. 
Although I did send, I sent some feedback into Ferg and his 2600 game by game podcast. He had his hundredth episode, which is just amazing. I mean, wow, to stick it through for that long. And it, ironically, in the feed, in the feedback for his hundredth episode, I forgot to actually congratulate him for his hundredth episode. So I had to send him feedback for his hundred and first, actually saying congratulations. But the, he had mentioned in this hundredth episode that, uh, you know, I was doing the Star Raiders port and that he'd hoped that he might be able to play it on his real hardware. And he wondered if that, I could get him some uh, a copy on on an actual floppy, and I, you know, my hardware is currently not not working. You know, certainly I can generate an ATR image, and the FC five hundred two five the floppy controller that I have doesn't write; it only reads. But I should be able to finagle something to get him a disc. So if I ever get Star Raiders working, I will definitely get for a copy of that, so he can play it on his real hardware. And speaking of disc images and stuff, I have a program that I wrote to uh, it's a Python program that splits. ATR images, and so you can get the EXEs out of the ATRs and then play them, you know, that way without without having to have a boot disk. And so Vic of the Ten Pence Arcade helped me test that a little bit. So thanks, Vic. I don't think I actually solved the problem that Vic was looking to solve, but he helped me test it, and we at least found out what was up with his the disk images that he was using. So thanks to Victor for that. But sorry, I couldn't solve the the problem that he was having with his. I guess the I guess the images on the disks he was looking at were actual. Um, they were full up boot disks. But I, he helped me fix the helped me fix the error messages so that uh, when you try to load a boot disk with a with my little splitter program, it at least comes up and says this is probably a boot disk, rather than just giving you the sort of the scrambled directory that you would get if you listed it in DOS. All right, well let's move on to the magazines. All right, let's look at Byte Magazine. This is volume six, number ten, for October nineteen eighty one. It's two dollars fifty cover price in the U.S. and they list a two dollars ninety five cover price for Canada. A McGraw-Hill publication. It's Byte the Small Systems Journal is the official title. And on the cover, there's a sort of an infinite latticework picture of a bunch of squares. And um, in some of the squares are these old TRS-80 kind of terminal-looking machines. You know, sort of the or pet, you know, kind of a built-in computer monitor with a keyboard. And there are um, wires between them. So, And the subheading of the... And the caption of this whole picture is Local Networks. So I've looked at a grand total of two Byte magazines so far. I gotta say, I, I really like the artwork of the covers. The artist is Robert Tinney. I guess I've heard of him. Some, I think maybe Fergus talked about him. I can't remember, but I've definitely heard about him in some other podcast. And I will try to figure out what that is. In the table of contents, they show a couple interesting things. There's a not a tie related, but they're uh, they have an article on the IBM personal computer first impressions. So we'll look at that a little bit. Then there's the Atari tutorial part two graphics in direction, and this is part of Dayray Atari, and we'll definitely look at that. There's a, a super niche topic here, a uh, software protection in the United Kingdom, which is uh, about a, a conference in London about the process, the problem of software piracy. There's some technical stuff. There's an article on tree searching, um, drawing with using Pascal. There's a, says a there's an article about uh, evaluate, evaluating your home's energy efficiency. Some, and there's a, there's a picture down below. There's sort of in the, t- in the table of contents, they seem to have like a bunch of their they list their articles on the top like two-thirds of the page on the bottom they have a bunch of pictures and on one of the pictures there's an uncaptioned but it says um it's eastern front it's a picture of eastern front sort of map page and page 70 and then then look up in the table con it's oh it's, it's talking about the atari tutorial so yeah it's i'm starting to flip through there's a there's an ad i kind of drew my attention it was a build your own 68,000 system the easy way it says the fully assembled boards provide a complete 68,000 capability it's a company uh TSD display products in Bohemia, New York. But I just think it was interesting. So in 81, that they're already talking about 68,000, you know, so the next generation 
it's a 16-bit computer rather than 8-bit. I bet the 68,000 was super expensive. They don't put a price. But uh, yeah, I'm betting it was a hugely expensive deal at that time. Then we come to the article, the IBM Personal Computer First Impressions by Phil Lemons. So it's, you know, just kind of an overview. They have a big picture of the IBM, the, you know, the sort of the classic IBM PC system. You know, the detachable keyboard with the clicky keys and there's an IBM monitor and the whole the whole bit. So it's starting price was $1,565 or $4,258 in today's money. Which is yeah, that's the base model, and the the high end model is over five thousand bucks, and you know five thousand dollars is thirteen thousand six hundred in today's money. So yeah, these are expensive machines. So as they go through the article, the they say well you know the it's a different bus than the S one hundred bus, but it says IBM doesn't want to exclude anyone from developing plug in compatible printed circuit boards, so they're opening up that spec. And this you know contrasts to the to the um, the PS two they develop, which has the, what's the name of that bus connector? Shoot. Because this is the this becomes the ISA standard ISA, and then I forget what the PS2 bus connector was. Was it MCA? That's it. Uh, MCA. Yeah, that was short lived because they didn't open up the spec. So the this computer uses the 8088 processor, which was you know eventually extended up to the the 86, 286, 386, blah blah blah, etc. To the x86 stuff we have now. And extended initially by AMD to 64-bit, and then IBM or the Intel borrowed the um, the microarchitecture from AMD to get their own 64-bit extension. So this it's become the dominant sort of desktop chipset, even though ARM processors are actually the dominant CPU because they're in pretty much everybody's phone. And you know, there's all sorts of stories about you know apocryphal things about how um, you know IBM went to Gary Kildall and, and he wouldn't uh, give him CPM, so that's when they went to to Microsoft and that MS-DOS and sort of... There's a couple of these things that are like fateful decisions that set the course of computer history. And, you know, also IBM went to Motorola initially and Motorola didn't want to second source the 68000, so that's why they ended up with the Intel chip. And I can just imagine how how different the world would be if we'd have, you know, CPM-compatible operating system running on 68000s for the IBM PC. Hopefully in some parallel universe, some people are enjoying much better microarchitectures than the x86. Yeah, 68000 has got to be my favorite assembly language. It's really cool, really great. And compare that to x86, is there's no no comparison. But this not being an Atari ST podcast, we won't talk about 68000 too much more. At least not yet, anyway. It's coming, eventually. Anyway, in, conclu- in conclusion, they said, um, IBM didn't stumble at all. The giant jumped leagues in front of the competition. Prices seem to compare favorably with 16-bit with available 16-bit S100 systems. And furthermore, the cost of an IBM personal computer configured for word processing is not much more than that of an Apple II or most other 8-bit machines. It says, A superior machine from the start, the IBM personal computer should grow in capability as outside vendors begin producing peripheral devices and add-on hardware for special applications. In fact, the only disappointment about the IBM personal computer is its dull name. One rumor claimed that IBM referred to this computer internally as the Acorn, and to me it looks more like the Mighty Oak. Although plus Acorn was already used, I think, in the UK, so no copyright violations. So yeah, and you know, clearly here we know the IBM is going to become the dominant architecture, and yep, this is the start. All right, well, as we continue to go through the magazine, there is an ad for uh, by Atari. It's called The Graphic Difference Between Atari Computers and All Others, and they just are emphasizing the graphic capabilities of the machine. Talk about the Antic, its own processor. and So Atari is a pretty schizophrenic when it comes to advertising. You know, sometimes they focus on... The graphics, sometimes they try to focus on the productivity apps. They just didn't have a consistent voice when they, yeah, when they did their marketing. 
All right, so here we come to the Atari tutorial part two, graphics in direction. This is by Chris Crawford, Atari Inc. 1265 Boregas Ave, Sunnyvale, California. So it talks a little bit about indirection in terms of you know, pr programming point of view. But what they really are talking about is how the Atari sort of is able to reference things in sort of a flexible manner. So rather than having like colors fixed in a graphics mode like the Apple II, where if you put, you know, if you put bit seven on and have a pixel by itself, it becomes, I forget, orange or something. And that's it. That's the only way you can get anything. You In the Atari, you use color registers, and you say, okay, this bit pattern in a particular graphics mode is going to be related to, it's going to be mapped to this color. So the bit pattern in, a say, graphics seven, where there's four pixels per byte. So each byte is broken down into four segments of two bits each. And so each two-bit pattern, it's either, you know, zero, 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 one, one, zero, one, one, each one of those patterns is mapped to a particular color register, and that's how it takes its color. And so this first section of the article is about colors. So it's talking about player colors, missile colors, the playfield colors, and the background colors, or background color, I guess. The second half of the article talks about character sets and how the character set is not fixed in memory necessarily, and you can redefine it for your own purposes. This is a common technique for any, for, you know, like Atari games, um, or even just like text if you want a different style for your text you can change the the bit patterns of each character and they will the operating system will just take over and you don't have to do any additional work it talks about full character set having 128 characters and the but there there are 256 possible values for a byte so the second 128 are inverse characters when you're talking about uh, graphics mode zero at least so character sets are eight bits wide so that's one byte and then eight bytes tall so the characters are eight by eight and they're just encoded in a regular binary, so it's just a bit, if a bit is on, there puts a foreground pixel in there, and if a bit is off, it's a background color. It talks about how to modify character sets, so you can copy the ROM character set into RAM and then modify it, or you can just put your own custom character set. And here's where the reference to Eastern Front comes in, because they show a picture here of Eastern Front where they have um, where they go over the how the character set was redefined, you know, to put the mountains or trees or rivers or whatever. Let's talk a little bit about the Antic Mode 3, which is a special text mode, which is, has character descenders. It's not used all that much, but I think there's some word processors that... I want to say Wade reviewed one recently, that I can't remember what it is, that it was um, it used Antic Mode 3. So the characters are 8 by 10, uh, at least on the display, and then they have they shift the little descenders for like the you know the G and the Q and P and all that stuff. So they're below the, the baseline of the font. And that there's a little teaser paragraph here that says, Even more exciting possibilities spring to mind when it's realized that it is practical to change the character sets while the program is running. It's inexpensive to keep multiple character sets in memory and flip them and flip between them during program execution. So you can either do animation, like sort of background style animation this way, or you can, you know, as you change, say, if, you, if you're running a maze game or something, as you change rooms, you can change these character sets. And, had, and it appears to have a lot more sort of variety than you can or, ordinarily do with a single character set. But in conclusion, he's a, he says um, character graphics are not as flexible as map graphics, and you you can't put anything anywhere you want. And so this limitation precludes the use of character graphics in some applications. But then, of course, character graphics, they take much less memory than uh, bitmap graphic, graphics. And, you know, at this time, you know, 81, we're still limited to 48K. Memory constraints are uh, something you got to be aware of. So, yeah, so that was part two of this 10-part series in Deirei Atari. Looking forward to covering more. I still have not actually read the full De Re Atari. I need to do that at some point. But I don't know, maybe I'll just, <laughs> maybe I'll go along as, as I go through Byte. I'll get enough of an idea, and then at the end I'll kind of go over and compare it. So yeah, that's the plan. There we go.
flipping through the rest of the magazine, all the 530 pages, we're not going to do the whole thing, but uh, there's an article about how to prepare your program for publication. So talking about, you know, marketing your game or program or whatever. And um, yeah, it's got some good tips. It says, you know, be aware of your hardware, use your own interests, find a subject that you can follow through to completion. You look at the market, make sure it's not saturated. And <laughs> you can't test a program too much. It's <laughs> all good tips even today. For technical stuff, there's an article, Tree Searching Part 2 Heuristic Techniques by Greg Williams, the senior editor. That's um, yeah, pretty technical on, on trees. I have to admit, I don't really use trees that much in my programming. It's I use Python mostly and just stuff everything into dictionaries. That's very rare. I need to use some other data structure. So that's kind of the... Kind of the benefit of the hardware now is that everything's so fast that you don't, a lot of times, for at least certainly for our first cut, you don't really have to to optimize directly to um, particular data structures. Oh, there's a, <laughs> further on, there's a, there's an ad for uh, BASF floppy disks. And it says, 10 reasons why your floppy disk should be a BASF flexi disk. And they have, <laughs> they have eight inch disks and a uh, five and a quarter. But I, so I have this piece of hardware called the um, FC5025. It's a, floppy disk interface that uh, attaches to it's a sort of usb to floppy connector so it uses you know the old style five and a quarter inch floppy drives pc style and then you attach it to the usb so i've, I've gone through and i've started archiving all my old floppies the problem with the 5025 fc5025 is it only reads the front sides it needs the a timing hole and the atari didn't use that timing hole for its for its formatting so you could you'd flip them over and use the back sides of the disc but this one does so i've only been able to get the the front sides of all my discs so far. But as in a little experiment, I had a whole bunch of different brands of floppy disks. And so I've I had a bunch of BASF discs, a bunch of Data Life discs, I have some Janus discs, a couple of Maxells, a Memorex, some Elephants. I don't know if you remember any of those brands. But in my in my testing, so I had I had seven BASF discs and um, so far only one of them was bad. I had twenty Data Life discs and let's see, four of those are bad. I have eight Janus discs, and four of those are bad. I have two Maxells, and one of those is bad. I had one Memorex, and that was fine. And I had two Elephants, and both of those were bad. So, <laughs> a small sample size, obviously. The, the Of the 20 data lifes, so it's a verbatim data life. That seemed to have done the best in terms of sample size. So BASF only having one error out of seven, and the verbatim data life's only having four errors out of 20, so one out of five seemed to have done the best. The Janus having four out of eight, yeah, that's not so great. Maxell one out of two, that's hard to tell for that. And uh, so Memorex emerged unscathed, but only one disc, so yeah, I got a good one there. It's funny, yeah, looking at the, some of the the discs, the like if you look at the elephant discs, the surface of the disc is very, like, it's a matte surface, whereas you look at the data life, it's it's sort of a, a glossy. And I always sort of assumed that the glossy surface was a higher quality. And, you know, I have... The, my sample size is too small to really tell, but, yeah, definitely the elephants didn't do well. Their elephants' tagline was, never forget. And I guess it's like, never forget, unless it's over 30 years. Oh, the fine print. And finally, the last thing we'll look at in Byte Magazine is... Uh, there's a big ad. Uh, Atari Software, it says, Piracy, this game is over. Full page ad, black and white. All of this is just text and the Atari logo on the bottom. And then uh, in the text, it's, it says, uh, Some companies and individuals have copied Atari games and attempt to reap undeserved profits from games that they did not develop. 
Atari must protect its investment so we can continue to invest in the development of new and better games. Blah, blah, blah. It says, Atari gives warning to both international pirate and individuals simply unaware of copyright laws. And I wonder if this is the... What is this? This is October 81. I wonder if this is the time of the suit um, John Harris and Jawbreaker. I wonder if that's this time. I don't recall off the top of my head. But that's kind of an annoying ad there. It's not, not something that is going to give warm fuzzies to Atari or potential Atari owners. Even though, you know, still I think piracy had a big effect on the Atari market, but this is kind of early in the game for them to be talking about just software piracy. I don't know. Pretty much whatever the right thing for Atari marketing to do, they always do the opposite. So, yeah. In hindsight, it's easy to criticize them, but still, it's kind of a misguided... I don't <laughs> I don't recall many other software publishers doing this, but I guess we'll, I'll maybe keep an eye out for that in case I see some in the future. So I covered about... 30 or 40 pages out of this 530 page magazine. Uh, there's obviously much more in there, but there certainly are a lot of ads, I gotta say. There was a review of uh, the Atari Telelink cartridge, and uh, I bet Wade will cover that at some point. So I'll leave that to him, but I'll have him look up the October 81 issue of Byte magazine. So, Creative Computing for October 1981, Volume 7, Number 10. Still two bucks fifty for the cover price. On the cover, there's a bunch of kids... Typing it, I don't know what it is. Is it a VIC-20? Hmm, it says computers are for people. Talks about new computer games and in-depth evaluations of some stuff. Educational applications. And a table of contents looking over here. What's up with the Atari stuff? Nothing in particular mentions the Atari except for the Outpost Atari column. This is an article called Programs for Preschoolers Starting Out Young. Talking about software for you know preschoolers who can't read. And this is seems like focused on TRS-80 stuff. So there's a few little software programs they go over, like uh, it said Dancing Demon, which is kind of an odd thing for a bunch of preschoolers, but it says, it has the best graphics I've seen on a TRS-80, which I don't know, is saying all that much. There's like a program called a Kidventure Little Red Riding Hood, or it comes with an audio tape, and you're supposed to advance the program with this, you have the kid press the space bar when it gets to a certain point in the, when the audio tape gets there. Um, just stuff like that. I, yeah, not on, nothing on the Atari, but I'm just kind of interested in the kid stuff, because you know, I've got small kids. And um, kind of wondering, well, how do they introduce them to computers? There's an article about uh, educational software and some books. That's a couple stuff. Yeah, most, mostly focused on TRS-80 and pet stuff. Oh, here's an ad for Crush, Crumble, and Chomp, which is a game I consider covering, but I think I, I won't actually, just because it's not as not arcade enough. It's take too much time to, for me to figure out again. There's an article on designing good educational software. It seems to cover, like, the elementary school age range. And so here's an article, Computers Are for People, by Betsy Staples, subtitled, A Visit to the Marin Computer Center. So Marin is just north of San Francisco. It's uh, across the Golden Gate Bridge. And a recent interview of Antic, they talked to David Fox, who was one of the designers of Rescue on Fractalis. But he also is the head of this, he and his wife, Annie Fox, are the head of this uh, Marin Computer Center. And both of them are still active on Twitter, and I'll include a link to their Twitter pages. But this was, I mentioned these guys briefly before I really knew, sort of connected who it was. I think in the first or second episode, it's back when they had these these small, um, you know, these mini computers, and they sort of opened the center up for um, for students. So here's an article about the state of the art now. So they have Atari's pets, uh, apples, and sort of gearing it towards kids. So I'll include a link in the show notes to some of their, their current projects, David and Annie Fox, and as well as a link to the uh, Antic interview episode. There's an article about, uh, it says, uh, the title is The Beginning for Britain and Computers with the BBC. So, essentially they're talking about the introduction of the, the Beeb, the BBC Micro. 
whatever we were, October eighty one. I don't know. I don't know off the top of my head where the when the bead was introduced, but a good buddy of mine, Neil from Scotland, is actually going to be visiting me in a little bit, and he grew up with the the BBC Micro, so I hope to have a more more info about that and I'll talk to him about it and see if he can give me an idea of kind of what it was like in comparison. It says here the computer has some text modes, like 80 by 25. Wow, that's pretty good. And a 640 by 256 high-res mode, uh, monochrome. Wow, that's, that's great. There's a great video, if you haven't seen it, on YouTube called The Micro Men. It was a BBC dramatization, I guess, of uh, Clive Sinclair and how Sinclair with the ZX Spectrum and stuff kind of went one way, and then like Chris Curry and Herman Hauser sort of split off and then founded uh, Acorn which led, you know, the BBC Micro, and then eventually the ARM processor and all sorts of fun stuff. So that's a great movie. I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Free on YouTube. There's an article on the uh, International Computer Problem Solving Contest results. So using computers to solve various math problems and stuff, and they all sorts of different divisions. And um, unsurprisingly, you might be, uh, yeah, not shocked to learn that I was in the math club in uh, high school, and there was a computer division, and I remember going to a a math contest, like the I don't know, regional math contest. And they had a computer division, and so the guy and I entered, and a bunch of stuff. I think it was on Apple's. We had to solve some things, and I remember he was like, he was, he was really good. And there was like, I don't know, nine problems or something, and I think he solved seven of the nine. I think I got one, and we didn't get another one. So he was, he was, uh, yeah, pulling his weight on that contest. But I felt proud. I actually I got one of them, so... Yay me. Yeah, and there's a few other articles, you know, education-related stuff. So if you're interested in education in the, in the 80s, this would be a good issue to check out. Sort of after that, in a different, onto the main section of the magazine, I guess, there's an article about numerical integration. I remember having to do this stuff in Fortran in college and, you know, trapezoidal approximations, uh, you know, subdivide stuff, and then go to, like, Rangakutta and all sorts of other sort of ways to, you know, get, get results from uh, numerical analysis. So yeah, it brings back some memories. That was on a that was on a CDC Cyber mini computer. Not quite punch cards. I missed the punch card era, but I was not yeah, not by much. A couple of years. So I had you know the monochrome terminals and go to the computer center and do all that stuff and get the printouts on the you know the big 132 character wide line printers. Those were the days. <laughs> there's a <laughs> there's an article titled Wombats, which I ordinarily wouldn't mention, but I just think that's a that's a cool name for an animal, Wombat. It's a program to generate word problems. It's a little basic, probably 30-line basic program for the TRS-80. But Wombat. So the Outpost Atari now. So this is by David and Sandy Small. So these guys are the regular uh, authors of Outpost Atari, I think, pretty much from here on out. So this is a beginner's guide to player missile graphics. So the previous several ep- issues, they've been talking about you know, some of the the specific hardware for the Atari, and they're, uh, I can't, they've kind of like backed out a little bit and gone to a sort of more overview of the player missile graphics. So they have a few like small little basic programs to get, give you an idea of how they work. You know, horizontal positioning, vertical positioning, the bit patterns you need to move up and down for you know vertical positioning. And you know, as I, as I go on a little bit here in the next couple of pages, I get into some technical stuff. And I was thinking it's interesting how the articles sometimes work in decimal and sometimes work in hex. And as I got into more Atari stuff, I would be I was more comfortable with the hex numbers. Just because they made more sense, because they'd be on like page boundaries. So like the player missile stuff, horizontal position positions are at uh, D thousand, so D zero zero zero, and then the color registers are like at D zero one two hex. Whereas if you look, if you look at a decimal, it's just like okay, 
the um, horizontal position is at five, three, two, four, eight in decimals. I'm like, well, that doesn't really. How do I n- remember that? But D thousand is easy to remember. Of course, I mean the downside is in basic. Of course, you can't use hex directly. You've got to specify the decimal, so you can't poke anything into D thousand. You've got to poke it into five, three, two, four, eight. But as you go into assembly and stuff, it was much easier to remember it in hex. And again, since they're talking about basic stuff, they're they um, use a lot of page six for their um, you know storing their little machine language stuff when they have little move up and down routines. But as usual, it's a very well written article and um, definitely worth reading. As an aside, I don't know if they pulled out other stuff and had separate like a separate issue for or like a you know separate bound thing for um, all their columns. I don't know. I'll have to look that up. They did. It was called the Creative Atari, published in 1983. Link in the show notes. There's an article that occasionally covers uh, intelligent computer games by David Levy, and he's talking about uh, contract bridge and how to program a bidding system. Which God, that's complicated. Holy cow! So much stuff you can do in bridge. All right, let's look at the Compute Magazine. This is Compute, issue 17, volume 3, number 10. It's October 1981. Uh, cover price is still 2 bucks 50 There's a few Atari things on the cover. There's a extending Atari player missile graphics. And another entry says uh, an Atari program library. And there's a sort of the standard Compute pencil and color drawings on the front. There's one with a Atari Fuji logo with a rocket engine in the back kind of shooting off to the left. Oh, there's another thing that says, more machine language for beginners. Hmm, okay, so we'll look at that. There's a lot of stuff listed in the table of contents relating to the Atari, and we'll get to all those. In the editor's notes, there's a column, um, or a little section of the column that says, uh, Atari moves into Minnesota, and it says, uh, the state of Minnesota, the school computer contract was previously held by Apple, has been awarded to Atari. So the Atari apparently offered a per-unit price, let's see, $579.00. For a Atari 400 basic cartridge, an A10 disk drive, and a 13-inch black and white TV, which is, that's, man, that's a pretty good price. I mean, the A10 disk drive alone is almost that much. Yeah, I wish the Ataris had gotten into my schools instead of Apple's. There's also a little section that says, Clarifying the Rights of Authors, and it says um, that when you, if you sell a manuscript to compute, we purchase all rights to your manuscript, including accompanying software. But then it says the software rights are non-exclusive, and then we freely give permission on request to the original authors. So I guess they're just essentially purchasing rights for the stuff that you wrote, so they don't have to ever pay you royalties again. But they're not—it's not exclusive to them, so you can still have the rights to sell your own stuff. So in case you're going to, uh, in case you're going to submit something to compute, there you go. Yeah, just like in Byte Magazine, there's this big ad by Atari: "Piracy, this game is over." This is just, yeah, that's a big. I know it's like they're they're advertising to other publishers, but yeah, it's in a consumer magazine, so it's just like not something that would give me a warm fuzzy about a company that does this. So another sort of mis-aimed or mistargeted marketing message. There's an article, a guest commentary. It says, a software publisher's position on software pricing and service policies. So apparently this paper, or this um, article is arguing against uh, a previous, something previously published, and I guess in the June issue, which I don't recall reviewing. So I guess that, that paper proposed that, uh, Oh, it was the Computer Using Educators group, which was a group of teachers and stuff, and they proposed that uh, any software would be allowed to be copied by teachers in one school, regardless of the number of computer, you know, the number of computers or the number of students. And so this is the software publishers group responding against it. So basically they're saying that's that's wrong. <laughs> they're saying that it's software copyright infringement and it's illegal and no amount of complaining will make it any less illegal. 
And, you know, basically they go in the standard arguments about anti-piracy, you know, how, how it takes lots of time and money and effort to develop all this software. And despite schools being a good thing, that they can't get around the whole, you know, paying for stuff. And the closing paragraph, it says, The problems created with software piracy, if unchecked, will create an unnecessary and unfruitful adversarial relationship between software publishers and educators. This paper delineates solutions to this dilemma. Better quality control of software, licensing agreements, rapid service, and available spare parts. So yeah, if you want more details, you can read that. It's um, pretty dry. There's an article that says, uh, What is a modem and why do I need one? And yeah, today you probably don't, but (laughs) back then it was fun. The article, More Machine Language for Beginners. This is focusing on the pet, but there's still some stuff that's, you know, useful if you're into machine language stuff. I mean, just reading all the assembly listings that they included in these magazines was was fun for me at the time. All right, then we get into the Atari Gazette. Atari Gazette seemed to be the biggest one in this issue. First, there's an article on the cassette uh, boot tape generation. It says, from DOS 2.0s binary load files. So I guess creating a cassette cassette boot tape from an executable. There's another article, Beware the Ram Top Dragon. Talking about the um, protected memory that you might need for a program. Yeah, it says perhaps a display list or a character set or a direct access memory file, it says. And so you wanna, if you want to have some memory that won't get stomped on, you can change the top of RAM pointer so that uh, the Atari will think that it's used and it won't try to allocate a graphics page or something up there. Oh, and here's an ad for uh, Jawbreaker, as we were just talking about. So yeah, I bet that Atari ad is a, in response to that. There's an article on Documented Atari Bugs by Steve Hansen from Madison, Wisconsin. Lists a few, mostly basic things. Um, bugs in Atari Basic. <laughs> One of them says, You can dimension arrays larger than the available memory size without creating an error. Of course, there will be problems galore and error messages when you, when you try to run the program. So, yeah. And it says there's only a few errors that he knows of in the OS ROM. There's an article, Graphit on the Atari by John Malcolm Neal of Portland, Oregon. It's like XY plotting program, although it doesn't give a sample of the graph of the output. And here's the article, Extending Player Missile Graphics, that was referenced on the cover. It talks about like a little animation loop, how you, uh, how you can set that up, and it's got a little basic program to demonstrate that with a little teeny machine language code to, uh, yeah, to move it up and down. Here's the Atari 400-800 variable name utility. Talking about the variable name ta- table in BASIC. So if you can have this really long variable name, and you can reference it a bunch of times in the program, but it still only stores it, you know, I think it's a, a two-byte string. I think it only recognizes, like, two characters. Here's the Inside Atari column by Bill Wilkinson. Talks about a bunch of little tricks with Atari Basic. One you can use, like, you can, you can go sub to a variable name, and it'll, it'll dereference that variable name to get a, the line number, and it'll jump to that line number. There's another one to uh, make unreadable programs, or unli- unlistable basic programs. So it's kind of a neat trick, just messing with the variable name table. That So the program still exists in memory, but the variables have all been changed to return characters. There's an overview article, Letter Perfect, by LJK Enterprises, that Wade covered previously. So and I certainly can't do any better job than Wade did about than talking about that. So this is a like a three-page article kind of summarizing the you know the abilities of the program and stuff. But you know, nowadays, just go listen to Wade's podcast, and you'll get a lot more good, good stuff about the about the productivity apps than you, than you can from the old magazines. There's a Atari disk file dump. So it's a program that does a hex dump of any file. It's a little basic program. There's an article, Atari Program Library by Ron and Lynn Marcuse, who Wade has also talked about. So it's kind of like a gathering up databases of, of all your disks and cataloging them. 
Kind of a long program. It's over like four, five, six pages. <laughs> and the last line is, good luck. <laughs> and the final article in this uh, target set is called Match, a Game of Memory and Timing. And it's interesting, just sort of a meta commentary here, that all the program listings, they don't really have, they didn't really settle on a common program listing format, because this one looks like it's typewritten. And the previous one, the Ronald and Mark Hughes, looks like it was printed on a dot matrix printer, and other ones look different. Yeah, so they haven't really standardized in a format yet. And then we skip over some other sections, and in the new product section, there's a TV monitor stand, TV slash monitor stand for Atari and Apple. It's kind of funny, these things had to be pretty beefy back then, you know, because they had to support the weight of a TV, which is not <laughs> insubstantial. Another little article, Atari sponsors research efforts in education. Founding of the Atari Institute for Educational Action Research. It says the Institute will provide grants of Atari computer products and or cash stipends to selected organizations, individuals, or institutions able to develop and promulgate new uses for computers and education. It says 250000 in cash and equipment will be given in the first year of operation. Hmm. Haven't heard of this really before. Oh, it says Atari within the past year has already given major cash and equipment grants to projects at the Lawrence Hall of Science, which was in the Atari Connection, I think, uh, last month they talked about that. Of course, that being the in-house magazine of Atari, I guess that's not surprising. They toot their own horn. There's another little section on, on uh, software development system for the Commodore, Apple, and Atari. So it's the MAE software development system. So it's a you know it's a cross-platform thing. So you can have your code written in all in one, and it can be moved to all three systems. You know, not the libraries, of course, but you know the, the main co- main code. It's not a cross-platform development system per se, but it, it's the same tools that can be used on all all the platforms. And finally, just looking at some of the ads for prices, the um, Apple II Plus, the 16K version was $1,025, $1,025. And the same company has an ad for the 16K Atari 800 for $749. So, yeah, quite a difference. And the the sort of the prices of the Atari disk drives always was a kind of a large expense. But here the price was, was it um, $450 for an A10 disk drive? And then the Apple... Two, the, the the disc two was four ninety nine with a controller card, but only well four thirty nine without one for the add on card. But still, that's not that much more expensive. And it was always kind of pointed out that the Atari peripherals were more expensive because they had to have you know controllers because they had communicated over the serial bus. But still, price premium for Apple there was back then. I guess there is now too, huh? And that'll do it for the compute. All right, let's start looking at a new magazine. This is Micro, the 6502-6809 Journal. So this is issue number 41 for October 1981, $2.50 on the cover price. So clearly this has been going on a long time since, uh, yeah, much before I was aware of it in the podcast. I wasn't aware of it back then. This is a pretty advanced journal, a technically oriented journal in the sense that there are a lot of machine language stuff. And um, it's cross-platform. They cover a, a lot of 6502 machines. And uh, at some point they started covering 6809. It, it didn't start with a 6809, apparently. I'm not sure. So sometime prior than this, obviously, it, it uh, added 6809 machines. I didn't know anything about the history of this magazine. I The best one, and it seems to be the one that's referenced everywhere, is from apple2history.org. So that's pretty much what I'm going to kind of quote here. Uh, the founder was Robert M. Tripp. He started a business called The Computerist back in the early, mid-70s. And uh, he sold the Kim One computer and, and some software and stuff for it. And then he started this magazine as kind of like a you know a newsletter for the for his business. So it was bi-monthly starting in uh, October of '77, and it went monthly in uh, February of '79. So I've got it pulled up on my magazine grid. So if you if you go to the 
Player Missile website and uh, check on the magazine's page. It's up there now. I I really don't list anything before April of 79 because that's sort of the first mention of the Atari computers in most magazines. So prior to that, prior to issue 11, it, w- it became monthly. And it went through a couple style changes, and by the time we're looking at it now, issue 41, it's sort of the, it's the, the style that remained throughout the rest of its publishing existence. So yeah, according to Apple2History.org, it covered pretty much all the machines, the Kim 1, the AIM-65, the Ohio Scientific stuff, the PET, Atari, Apple II, and it said that eventually more than half the articles would uh, apply to the Apple II, so it became a little bit kind of Apple II-specific towards the end of its life. And it says the issues tended to focus on a particular theme, starting out with articles that would focus on a particular one of the brands of the machines, and then would sort of broaden out and cover other stuff that were applicable to that theme. But this is my first time looking at it, so I don't know how um, how long that goes, or if that's even a continue or a, you know a common trend. Again, this summary has it that the peak circulation was about forty thousand issues per month half going to subscribers and the other half were to like specialty dealers and stuff. So I'll include a link in the show notes for um, this particular summary and then a couple more summaries that I found, but pretty much they just point back here. So this is like the canonical summary of a micro magazine. So we start looking at first the, the cover on this one and it has, it's punched for like a three hole binder, three ring binder. And I don't know if that's just this particular one. I, I can't recall. I, I'm, I flipped through a few of them when I was at the Atari party and I can't recall if they have, were punched with three holes or or not but i will keep a note of that so yeah on the cover here is a is a shot of a sort of like you're looking you're sitting inside a computer monitor looking out at a static display of a bunch of rockets and these are the actual rockets i think it might even be at redstone arsenal in um alabama that's, that's a guess it could be canaveral i'm not sure but uh to kind of put my rocket skills to the test i would i could identify a couple but i had to look up some so the rockets are it's, it shows a redstone rocket with it looks like the the package that had launched the Explorer, the first U.S. orbital satellite, and next to it was one I'd seen before but didn't recognize is the Thor Abel launcher. Next to that is the Atlas Agena, which was um, the Gemini launch vehicle, as well as the Agena upper stage was used to, for some satellites, as well as the some of the rendezvous missions with the Gemini. Then there's the Juno rocket, and then lying on its side is a Saturn One B with an Apollo capsule on top. So that's the way to pander to me is to put some rockets on the front of the cover. The title or the uh, captions on the under there looks at the TRS-80 color computer to set up programmable motion and some ADD converters for your computer. Not a lot of references to the Atari in this magazine. And right away you can tell the technical bent of this because there's um, a bunch of hardware articles on the... There's a 6522-based potentiometer position digitizer. There's a 6502 frequency counter article. There's the 6809 and the S50 bus, whatever the S50 bus is, interfacing two 12-bit ADD converters to an AIM and uh, a bunch of other stuff. There's a pet bonus section where they have five articles on the pet, and there's an Apple bonus section where they have three articles on the Apple. So Atari is mentioned a couple times. So the first article is about the Radio Shock color computer, which is a 6809-based system. And again, I just have to mention that uh, I heard this new podcast starting up. is the Coco Crew so they're going to cover the 6809-based color computer. And so in this little article has a couple of features I didn't really know. It shows the, the graphics modes. So the highest resolution was 256 by 192 in two colors. And there was a four-color mode that's 128 by 192. But I'll be listening to the Coco Crew podcast, and maybe I'll hopefully learn some more technical details about that machine, because I know nothing about it. 
there's an article called From Here to Atari by James Caporell, who would eventually found Antic magazine. So this is 81. So he doesn't found Antic for another, what, six months or so? Yeah, the first Antic is April of 82. So it says his purpose in writing this column is to give potential microcomputer users enough info on the Atari 800 to provide a basis of comparison to other micros. So it goes through and lists a whole bunch of the advantages of the Atari, you know, the, especially the video stuff, and uh, talks about parallel and serial ports. And there, at the end, there's a um, a summary table of Atari features. That, you know, goes lists like 21 features. You know, the full screen editor, upper lowercase cursor control, RFI shielding, blah blah blah, a bunch of lists. And at the end, is 20 is a parallel port built in, and 21 is a serial port built in. And that's slightly disingenuous because neither of them are standard. The parallel port. Essentially, he's talking about linking the joystick ports together to get parallel data. And the serial port is, the, of course, the SIO. It's not a standard serial at all. So, But still, it's a good summary of the advantage of the Atari over the other machines. <laughs> and then the next page is this stupid ad again. Atari, piracy, this game is over. It's like, what is the deal with this? I cannot understand what their goal was in like stomping all over people with this ad. This is not, I don't think, the place to put this kind of ad. But clearly, they didn't ask me. So anyhow, there's an article about this, some hardware schematics for uh, building a the 6522 interface. And there's a frequency counter. There's another. Wow, there's lots of lots of schematics. So yeah, if you're a if you're interested in building, soldering and stuff, this would be a good magazine to check out. Lots of ads for Apple II software, space eggs, stuff like that. Stuff things things that I recognize from my limited time with the Apple. There's a bunch of in-depth st- coverage of the PET ROM. Oh, so here's an article on the 6809 and the S50 bus. So apparently the S50 bus was on the Coco. It's not clear here how the S50 is related to the S100, if at all. But there's a big list of support manufacturers and stuff. And if I had to bet, I would say none of them are left today. And in the Apple bonus section, there's a couple of things. There's an Apple byte table. It lists like all the hex values, you know, 0 to 255. And then it shows like the... 6502 instruction, the Applesoft basic instruction that's tokenized to that byte. Yeah, integer basic token shows the you know the ASCII symbol, the key press combination that gets you that ASCII symbol. Probably useful for Apple folks. There's part two of this um, solar system simulation program. So I guess it'll allow you to plot the um, locations of the planets as they go by and kind of show what they're going to look like on the as they go on the night night sky. So you can see like the retrograde motion of Mars and stuff. At the end of this magazine is something that was referenced in the uh, Apple II history article. Was that it's a six five zero two bibliography? So they list a whole bunch of like books, references. Looks even like in some magazines as well, places that reference the six five zero two. And the last page they have a next month in micro. They have a little teaser and something to look forward to. They have a games bonus section. They have a saucer launch, which is a game exploring the special hardware of the Atari eight hundred. Yeah, so we'll have to check that out. Something to look forward to for episode 14. And now we have a new contributor to the podcast. Michael Glazer is an Atari owner from way back and contacted me and wanted to see if he could help with the podcast. And and I'd, I'd be very grateful for the help. And uh, so I, it's still going to be a one-person podcast in that I'm not going to have a co-host, really, but I, I do welcome his contribution so he, Michael's going to be start taking over Softside magazine, as I've kind of groused about in previous podcasts. Softside is not my favorite, and you know it, I wasn't really that impressed with the format, and 
I was debating dropping it just because I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really into it and was kind of dreading covering it. And, um, but Michael offered to take it over. So I am super excited about this. It's nice to share the load a little bit. And Michael's going to talk a little bit about his background with Atari stuff. And he, like me, went from the Atari 8 bits to the Atari ST. And so I hope if we, uh, give him enough positive feedback here that he'll eventually start an ST podcast. So I'm really looking forward to somebody covering the STs. We've got a lot of 8-bit coverage, but really nothing on the ST yet. So I, I'd be totally happy for Michael to use this as a springboard to get going with the uh, an ST podcast. And it also brings up, if you're listening to this and you would also like to contribute, say if you want to take over coverage of a particular magazine, um, yeah, just send me an email and we can talk a little bit about it. The only magazine I'm definitely not giving up is Analog. I'm keeping that for myself. But if you're a big fan of the Antique Magazine or, you know, Creative Computing or whatever, um, yeah, let me know if you're interested in, in contributing a little segment. Or even if you just like a want to try a one-off, if you'd like to just try covering a magazine for once, we can talk about that as well. Yeah, so send me an email if you might be interested in, in helping out with the podcast. It's uh, feedback at playermissile.com. So yeah, I'm super excited about having Michael here to help with the podcast. So let me welcome Michael and his new segment on SoftSide. Hey, pod people. I'm Michael Glaser, and Rob's been nice enough to give me a shot at podcasting by covering the SoftSide magazine. Thanks a lot, Rob. Not only is it my first time doing podcasting, but it's also my first time reading SoftSide, and I have to say I really enjoyed the magazine. Although I'd love to cover everything in the magazine, uh, this is Atari Podcast, so expect me to focus mainly on uh, that system and generic topics, as well as some ads that spoke to me. Don't expect me to deviate too far from what Rob's been doing, but I do like my drops. Before I get started, Rob suggests I introduce myself and give a little background on why I'm into Ataris as well as vintage computers. Origin story. In the long, long time ago, when graphic consisted of dots and dashes, I had an Atari Pong. In fact, I still have that Pong. But soon after, I found an ad in a magazine featuring the Atari VCS. They were advertising it with the Atari arcade game Tank, which I used to play at lunch when I went skiing. Of course, the cartridge was combat. And I really wanted it, but my dad said it was way too expensive. Luckily, he was able to find a used one for Christmas, and that one came with a bunch of games. But at that point on, I was an official Atari fanboy. From time to time, when I saved up enough money, I'd go up to the local computer store to see what was new. And that's when I saw it. It was in the back. It was the Atari 800. They'd Star Raiders running on it, and they actually charged people to play on it. So grabbed all those glossy pamphlets they had lying around, and I'd look at them like any healthy teenage boy would. That same year, our junior high got an Apple II Plus. Yes, one Apple II Plus. I guess they wanted to see if the kids would uh, be in this new computer thing. So at lunchtime, we'd run over to the library and gather around the computer and watch one guy play it. Of course, I begged my parents for an Atari. It was expensive. I think it was around $800. Um, and they just had gotten the 48K version in. But I had to make a deal with my parents to sell my mini bike, and then I got them for Christmas. Atari 800 with 48K and on the Star Raiders cartridge. So I played that all morning and then eventually cracked the basic book open and typed in my first program, which was a bird flying over the ocean with the sound of crashing waves hitting the shore. For me, that was pretty impressive. By the time schools got more apples and the first computer program class, I signed up immediately. Eventually, I upgraded to the 130XE, then the ST, and finally the Falcon. I'm now a casual system collector, and I dabble with code from time to time. My systems are limited, but they're slowly growing. Although I don't have an Atari 8-bit yet, I know there's one in my future soon. I really have appreciation for those those systems. 
it was a time when knowledge of computers was something special. Computers had character, and I really appreciate those that keep it going. It's a piece of history and something that shouldn't be forgotten. We're kind of the nerdy version of those old car collectors, and I'm cool with that. On the forums, you might know me uh, making comments from time to time as Justin Payne. Professionally, I'm a QA engineer. I've been doing that since 1998, and recently I became a developer in test, so now I get to write automation. So that's enough about me. Let's get to SoftSide. It's October 1981. Issue 37, Volume 5, Number 1, 98 pages. Price is $3 now, or that's $8.16 today. This month's cover features an artist's rendering of the iStream concept. A complicated medieval city on top of a hill can be codified by Envin, which appears to be a circuit board trace located at the bottom of the page to produce Envin Mint, which I assume is represented by the wizard. If that explanation confuses you, don't even think about reading the article that discusses it. The good news is it's only for the TRS-80. The text on the page reads, iString produces Envin. The editorial starts off by discussing computers for amusement, then going into talking about applications used more for simulation, and finally tying their product Envin, which is supposed to make computers more user-friendly. There's also a section where sociologists believe that computers will allow for more leisure time. I didn't feel that way, but I looked it up, and in the U.S., that's true only slightly. I think it's going along with the prediction that computers would save us a ton of time. I find that with what time it does save just gets filled with more work. In the input section, which is readers' comments, somebody suggests that the advertisements that have spelling and grammatical errors can reflect on the confidence, the quality that consumers have in the quality of the programs they intend to purchase. I kind of agree with that. There's also mention of piracy. It references the response of Scott Adams back in July about giving away software. I struggled with this as a kid since I had no cash and I would pirate from time to time. In the hints and enhancements section, Michael Chin of Hawaii included two comments and several fixes. Way to go, Michael. Now for an overview and review of the game Leyte. Originally written for the TRS-80, this was converted to the Atari and Apple by Alan J. Zett. It's a 16K graphics mode zero game, and it's available on Tardomania.com. It's October 1944, and you play as Vice Admiral Lee. This battle of Leyte simulation is based on what might have happened if Lee had been waiting for Vice Admiral Takeo Kurita and his central force at the mouth of San Bernardino. You are in command of an American fleet which consists of the following ships. Battleships, Jersey, Washington, Massachusetts, and Alabama. Heavy cruisers, Baltimore, Pittsburgh and six Fletcher-class destroyers. Corita's fleet consists of battleships Nagato, Congo, Haguro, and Yamoto. Heavy cruisers Chokai, Sizuya, light cruiser Nagara, and eight destroyers. Your playfield is the map showing the island of Samar, with San Bernardino to the left and Leyte Gulf to the right. North is the left side of the screen. The Japanese fleet will move from San Bernardino to Leyte. You have four commands to issue. Get the status report, fire guns, fire a torpedo, and course correction. The status report will tell you the condition of each of your ships. You will not be told the status of the Japanese fleet. You will only know the status of a Japanese ship if it has been sunk. If you choose to fire your guns, you will be asked for a target for each of your ships. Each Japanese ship is numbered 1 through 8, 8 being destroyers collectively. If you attempt to target a ship that's previously been sunk, you will be instructed to target another ship. Firing torpedoes is essentially the same as your guns, except that only destroyers carry torpedoes. Thus, you will only be able to fire at one target. Keep in mind the Mark 14 torpedoes used by the U.S. Navy in World War II were notoriously unreliable. It is not necessary to access the course correction command on every turn. 
Your course is initially set in a northerly direction. To change this, you will be prompted to enter a number, which will lead you in any of one of eight directions. You'll only be able to set course corrections for your entire fleet. The Japanese fleet will be heading generally south at flank speed, so that if they get past your fleet, you will not be able to intercept them. Maneuvering is as important as firing. If you are too far, your chances of sinking anything will be very slim. Too close and too soon, and the Japanese will blow you out of the water with their superior gunfire and torpedoes. To win, you will need to sink all seven capital ships or everything larger than a destroyer. If any get to Leyte, or if your ships, including destroyers, are sunk, you lose. The Japanese will not turn around, so failure is not an option. So here's my impressions of this game. Since it's graphics zero and character set wasn't modified, the graphics are unimpressive. Course correction is rough, so you really never know where you'll end up exactly. Firing guns is easy, but I would have liked to be given a menu of ships instead of having to reference them in the article. I would have also liked to see something keep track of how many hits were made on the enemies, as well as a miss notification. Currently, you're only told when you get a hit. So a status display of some kind would have added to the game experience. I think the game is a good start on a simulation, but has little replay value. As far as bugs, I did crash the game when I actually hit a letter instead of a number when I was targeting a ship. Checking what characters were entered is Development 101. Under K-Biter's programming challenges, they have one um, challenges for the Atari, TRS-80, and Apple. The previous one was the one-liners, where some of the community does that now. This time around, programs within 1K of RAM, and also write one or more lines of proper basic code that almost looks like English. For example, if you equal good, then you equal winner. In the Take Apart section, they break down Atari Quest 1, which was published in August 81, and they consider this one of their best programs they've produced. This breakdown contains some tricks that they used in this roguelike game that uses Graphic Zero. If you want to play it, you can find it on atarimania.com. I actually did play it, and I thought it was it was interesting. I think if I had this code as a kid, I think it would have helped me write some games like this. I remember being in, in computer programming school, and a kid was working on something like this, and I had no clue how to do collision detection. I think it's definitely a good read. They also have the Atari Character Generator, which, of course, generates characters. You can change them, um, you can edit them, and make your own character sets. I think it looked quite useful. In the What's New section, they talk about the Epson MX100 dot matrix printer. They said they've seen better printers, but not for that price at $819, or $2,228 today. Ouch. In the Bugs, Worms, and Undesirable section, uh, there's one bug fix for the game Quest 1, the one I was just talking about, for the Atari, TRS-80, and Apple. I checked Atari Mania version, and it is fixed, but there was also a user suggestion that was not incorporated. Now let's discuss some of the ads. Um, there's an ad for Basic Handbook, which contains an encyclopedia of all the basic computer language syntax. I think that would be kind of useful. And it was for $17.95, pretty reasonable, but nowadays that's $48, so looks less than reasonable. Ad for Alien Invasion game, uh, it's sort of a Space Invaders knockoff for the TRS-80, but uh, the developer was Bill Hogue and Jeff Konyu of Software Innovations. You probably know those guys from Big Five Software, for Minor 2049 or Bounding Bob Strikes Back. Price for cassette was $9.95 or $27.07, or disc $14.95 or $40.68. There's an ad for Star Trek 3.5. The developer was Lance Miklas. And for the Atari, it was $19.95 for tape, uh, which is interesting because the TRSETI version is $14.95 for tape. It says the Atari was cooler. We had to pay a premium price. 
They also have a type and talk speech synthesizer that uh, connects to the RS-232 port. It transmitted at uh, 9,600 kilobits and has unlimited vocabulary. And it was only $369 or $1,000. Well, that wraps it up for Softside this month. I hope you enjoyed it and I'm going to hand it back to Rob. Well, thanks to Michael for contributing that section on Softside. I enjoyed hearing about it. You know, normally I have to do these things myself, and so it was fun to listen to somebody else look at a magazine and describe it to me. So, thanks a lot, Michael. Looking forward to more contributions. So now let's get to the game review of Missile Command. Missile Command is a 1981 game by Rob Zadibble, released by Atari on an 8K cartridge. It's a game for one or two players using the joystick controller. And this version does not support the trackball. It does use the keyboard for some setup options, but not during gameplay. The gameplay is just the joystick and the button. It's a single-screen arcade shoot-em-up game where you're defending six cities from incoming nuclear missiles, and you launch missiles to destroy them. Rob Zadibble was a longtime Atari employee. He got there in the early days, in early 8081, and worked through the Tremel era, and says in several interviews that he's one of the guys that turned off the lights at Atari. As an aside, I've always pronounced the Trammell's name as Trammell, but I guess it's really Trammell. So I've got to learn to change my thinking. Trammell, not Trammell. I knew it wasn't Trammell, but seeing it written out, I thought it was Trammell, but I guess it's Trammell. So I'll have to work on that. So if you catch me saying Trammell, say, send me some feedback and say, Trammell. Anyway, there's several interviews that I've heard, and I'll include a link to some in the show notes. There's a, a great long one on the Retro Gaming Roundup where he tells, talks a whole bunch of stuff. He's a <laughs> he's one of those guys that has his opinion, and he's going to tell it to you. He's a, a very very forthright, shall we say. But he tells a lot of funny stories. There's a, <laughs> One of the ones I enjoyed is a, a story about how he developed Bug Hunt for the XEGS. They needed a light gun game. One of his sort of tenets when he's developing a game is to always put some feature in that was like easy to change or, or you know, that was not exactly up to spec or something, but just so that, you know, when marketing look at it, they say, oh, okay, change this, and it would be something easy to change, you know, something that you knew in advance that he was going to, that you that you would change. So I guess for Bug Hunt, they put in this title screen as as the thing that marketing would, would demand to be changed. I guess the idea being that, you know, if they gave him a list of things to change, he could change this, this low-hanging fruit and say, oh, we only got time to change this, you know, because you have this crazy deadline or whatever. But I guess marketing came back and didn't change anything, so he, he apparently really doesn't like the title screen on Bug Hunt for XEGS. He has a bunch of interesting things to say about the Jaguar system and how it was really hard to debug. He did some Jaguar coding, and looking at the giant list of classic game programmers on uh, James Haig's site, he did a couple things for Atari, you know, of course, Missile Command, uh, Bug Hunt, and then a couple things released through APX in uh, 81 and 82, Castle, Alien Egg, Centurion, and then a game that he really thought, according to this interview, was um, one of his best works was Warbirds on the Lynx. And he stayed in game programming after he left Atari. He did some stuff for the 3DO, uh, Nintendo 64, PlayStation, and he's still active doing game development now. He said he loved the Lynx system. He thought that it was a a great system, great to develop for, and he thought that the system died because it was squashed by the competing Japanese companies at the time, who he thought in sort of a (laughs) conspiracy theory kind of way that the, the Japanese companies artificially limited the LCD screens that were sh- gonna, that could be shipped to the U.S. to build the Lynx. Yeah, the Lynx is an interesting system. It was designed by Epix, but then Epix kind of went under and Atari bought it out. And there were a few Lynxes at the um, Atari party. 
so I heard him speak at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo in, in 2014 on a panel. It was really, the panel was supposed to be David Crane, Gary Kitchen, and Bob Smith, but Rob Zadibble and Todd Fry also joined. And I tried to find a video for it, but it doesn't seem to be on YouTube. There's a YouTube video from the 2013 Portland Retro Gaming Expo where he's on a panel. So I'll include the link to that one in the show notes. On the panel that I heard him speak on, he ended up kind of like sort of dominating the panel. And I don't know, I was kind of, I was a bit disappointed. I wanted to hear more from Bob Smith, who said probably, you know, eight or ten words the whole time. Bob Smith was one of the founding guys at Magic. But in developing Missile Command for the 800, it's a really excellent port of the arcade game. And as I mentioned briefly when I uh, talked about the Atari Party and Dan Kramer being there, so even though this version, the Atari 800 version, does not support the trackball, he had a version in-house that would support a trackball, but he would only give that version to you as an Atari employee if you first built a custom controller that had a trackball and three buttons. And if you did that, he would make you this custom version. He would personalize it for you, like on Dan Kramer's version, it says DK's Missile Command, and only then would he give it to you. So you had to pass that barrier for entry, and then you get a custom Missile Command. The one that Dan Kramer built had a sort of small, like a pool cue-sized trackball, and the three sort of conical buttons, just like the arcade game. So I looked at the manual for the 800 version. There's none of that dumb stuff about Zardonians and Krytolians and whatever wink-wink made-up alien location thingies like in the 2600 version which i thought i thought was pretty silly i guess in the the when ferg reviewed the 2600 version you know i guess they had sort of a whole whole backstory and i even maybe a comic book i can't remember exactly but i don't know i kind of enjoy that this this one just like the introduction the one page introduction just says you know talks about generic terms is like you are defending against the enemy and the enemy is launching missiles and you have to defend you have to knock these missiles out Say, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not a huge fan of this sort of made-up backstory. It's just like, tell me what you need to tell me to get the game going, and let's do it. I like the cover, too. It's, uh, it shows kind of a bunch of stylized pictures of some, some people sitting at the, you know, radar screen sort of desks and, you know, early warning systems, kind of a montage of people. And in the background, there's a, a logo that might be familiar to some of you who lived here in the 80s in the U.S., or even earlier, it was used back, I think, after World War II it started. It was the Civil Defense logo. So it's a circle with an equilateral triangle inside, and inside that, there's a stylized C, letter C and letter D that are sort of back-to-back, such that the C and the D kind of make up a circle. So I remember this, a Civil Defense logo, and I even remember fallout drills. Like, here in California, you know, they have earthquake drills. In the Midwest, they have tornado drills. But I remember fallout drills where we'd go down to the basement in the, these elementary schools and kind of sit on the stairwell and stuff and... Yeah, it was a different time, and the threat of nuclear war was certainly pumped up in the psyche of the of the people here in the U.S. The Cold War at its full, at a, you know, the full swing. I'd be interested to hear from European listeners, you know, the Western Europe folks behind the Iron Curtain back then, what it felt like, you know, to to be in the Cold War with the sort of yeah, you know, there was there was really legitimate threats. There was sort of this this feeling that it was not just a zero possibility, you know, that there could be missiles flying over. And that's what I think makes the the game where they describe it as, you know, not Zardonians and whatever, but as the enemy, you know, there's pictures of actually, you know, humans sitting at these missile defense stations. And so at the time, you know, playing this game, you know, in a dark arcade on the arcade machine or at home at night or something. And yeah, it tapped into the fears of us back then. Dave Thur, the guy who wrote the arcade game that this was based on, he wrote it in 1980 said he used to wake up with nightmares about 
sitting in the Bay Area. He said he'd climb, you know, climb up hills and he he could just see see the missiles coming in, the explosions happening over San Jose or something, and knowing that he'd have a ten seconds to live before the you know, before the expanding blast and the cloud reached him. He said he wake, woke up in cold sweats. We'll talk about the arcade game in a little bit. Look at the instructions again for this for the eight hundred version. To start the game, you'd hit the start button. Select chooses between one or two players. The option button chooses if you've got a bonus or not. So you either get a bonus city at 10,000, or you can turn that off and have no bonuses at all. The manual has some interesting options. You can use the keys 0 through 9 to choose the level you start at. So you can start at any level from uh, 1 through 10. So 0 starts at level 1, and 9 starts at level 10. And there's an interesting practice mode. If you want to have practice with the smart bombs only, you can, you can press S key, and you'll only get smart bombs, no actual missiles. If you press any other key during gameplay, it'll pause the game for you, which is a nice nice feature. So it's a single-screen game. When you first see it, you see the title screen, it has the sort of the background. There's a the bottom few pixels are the ground, and there's six cities that you see, and in the center on the bottom is your missile launcher. When you start the game, it then changes to the the regular gameplay screen, which is the same base, you know, it's got a, it's got the ground and then your six cities, your central ABM launcher. And then you control a cursor, so your joystick moves this little plus sign across the screen. And then when you press the button, you launch one of your ABMs. And once when you press the button, the, whatever your, wherever your cursor is at that time when you press the button, will change it to an X, and that's the target for your missile. So your missile will rise to that point and then explode and leave this sort of expanding and then contracting cloud. And the idea is that you want to shoot down... Missiles, smart bombs, airplanes, and satellites as they fly overhead. So unless you choose the smart bomb only mode, there'll be two flights of missiles that come down. There'll be one group, and then a slight pause, and there'll be another group. And so you've got to destroy all these missiles before they take out all your cities. The airplanes and satellites that fly over will also fire missiles down at you, and they start at a lower altitude. The missiles will, will, will fall from the top of the screen, but the planes and the satellites will be somewhere below the top of the screen. So it's generally good to take out the missiles and, or to take out the planes and the satellites as early as you can, because you have less time to react to the missiles. If the missile gets past your defenses and hits one of the cities, it'll blow up that city and you'll lose that city. It'll leave a big crater where that city was. If the missile happens to hit your ABM launcher, it'll take out that and you'll lose whatever ABMs are on the screen at the time. So it goes in sets of six and you've got 30 ABMs total in each wave. So if a missile hits your ABM side, you'll lose whatever six is remaining of that of that set, and then a new set of six will come up, and you'll get to shoot that. If you run out of ABMs and you try to fire, you'll get this little sound, which means you're pretty much screwed. And then the, actually, the missiles then will, will speed up a little bit, and it'll it'll take you to the end of the wave. If you, if you still have cities remaining at the end of the wave, you'll get to advance. But if you lose all your cities. The game will be over, and it'll take you to a closing screen where it has a big the end on it, and then the explosions will rumble on the screen and take out parts of the, the end. You won't actually have smart bombs for a few waves, and then they'll come in, and smart bombs will avoid your explosions to some extent, so you really got to target them almost exactly on top of the smart bomb. One of the techniques you can use is when you when you fire an ABM and you hit one of the incoming missiles, it will also generate an explosion. So you can kind of, if you can get missiles close enough together, the explosion of one missile can actually take out the explosion of an, it can take out another missile. So you can get sort of a chain of explosions going. And if you get, if you run low on ABMs, this is a technique you'll have to use. 
but this is a fast-paced white knuckle game. It's um, yeah, I remember playing it both in the arcades and at home. This version is limited to joystick support, but it's actually not too bad. It's it's it controls pretty well. It's um, it's pretty fast, pretty responsive. Of course, I think it would be better with a trackball, and we'll talk a little bit later about our version with a trackball support. It's kind of got this early game sort of scoring. Actually, the, the, the point scoring is the same as the arcade version. You get 25 points for destroying a missile, 100 points for either a satellite or a bomber, and you get 125 points for a smart bomb. And you get bonus points after you complete a wave, so the number of ABMs you've, you've saved gets you 5 points each, and each saved city gives you 100 points each. And then as you go up in waves, you get bonus multipliers. So the first two waves just have a normal one multiplier, but then the second two waves, waves three and four, have a two times multiplier, and then three times for waves five and six, four times for seven and eight, five times for nine and ten, and then all the waves above that have six times scoring. In the in the home version here, the 800 version, there's a sort of, I don't know, I suppose a bug disguised as a feature. When you reach a million points, you lose all your bonus cities that you have in reserve. In the, in the manual, it says, after all, such a talented player really doesn't need bonus cities. But yeah, really, really I think this is probably a bug discovered in testing and they, d- they decided to sort of highlight as a feature. When you do get a bonus city, play, it's placed at random at the start of the next wave. If you happen to have a bonus city in reserve, but all your cities get destroyed in that level, you'll, you will actually move on to the next wave with a, bon- with a single bonus city, or as many bonus cities as you have in reserve. So yeah, this is one of the classic games. I think if Missile Command, among like, Pac-Man, Donkey Kong, Space Invaders. I think if you said Missile Command to somebody today, they would know what they would know what it is. I mean, it's it's a classic, iconic game, and I remember playing the arcade game a lot, and you know, being just excited about playing it. But you know, of course, I'm not very good at games, really. So, but it was you know, it's very it was one of these white knuckle games that really gets you going. And initially, you know, talking about the arcade game a little bit, Dave Thur, the designer, talked about a whole bunch of you know really high level stuff they wanted. Initially, they wanted to have like you know, names of the cities below. They wanted it to be the California coast. So, you know, protecting Los Angeles, San Diego. And, but they took that out because it was too, it was too real. You know, it just made everybody as, you know, as Dave Thurs said, he gave him nightmares and stuff. And so, and, and the initial game, the initial name of the game was going to be Armageddon, which again, they changed because they thought it was just too dark. But this is, you know, obviously it's a really dark game. You're getting cities destroyed and nuclear war. One of the differences in the arcade games is that there are three bases that can launch ABMs. There are, there's one on the left side, there's one in the center, and one on the right side. And something I didn't know about the arcade game is that the missiles launched from the left and the right side actually travel slower than the missiles launched in the center. Something I didn't mention about the, the 800 version is that the background colors sort of change a lot. So you get these interesting color schemes, the sky will change, the ground will change. And the arcade game did that as well. It gets very very bright and sort of... Oh, there's some odd color combinations. <laughs> So the arcade game had the three buttons, one for one for each base. So you'd, you'd press the left button to launch from the left base and stuff. And it had a really big trackball. Well, I guess the um, upright version did. I, the cabaret had a smaller version. And apparently they had a cocktail and um, an environmental cab as well. According to Arcade History, about 20,000 arcade cabinets were built. So it was one of the more popular games. There's a couple links to some videos for um, interviews with Dave Thurer. So I'll include those in the show notes. Where he talks about some of the background of the game, you know, initially he said they thought they were they were going to try to have like railroads that were supplying your ABM bases, and he said they were even going to be submarines for a while. And uh, but he said it just got too complicated, and but eventually they just pared it down to this sort of sort of the bare bones missile defense. Part of creating a great game is knowing what to take away, so they just kept pulling stuff out and until they sort of pared it down to this 
sort of the minimal version that that still had the the gameplay they wanted. They said in the development of the arcade game, there were there were people that would just come down and, and spend all day playing Missile Command, but still it affected them. And and you know Dave Thurer said that you know he had those dreams where he'd see the missiles coming in and wake up in cold sweats. And there's a quote from Steve Calfey, who's a another Atari coin-op designer, who said they had a big thing about the name of the game. From the beginning, it was called Armageddon, and the management didn't know what the word meant, and they thought that none of the kids would. So they went this whole big thing about naming it, and it said engineering loved the name Armageddon, always wanted to call it that. But from the very top, it came the message that we can't use that name. Nobody will know what it means, and nobody can spell it. <laughs> so they eventually settled on Missile Command. Apparently, they had a multiplayer sequel planned for the arcades, but that never, never made it out. Sort of an unofficial sequel is Super Missile Attack. And this is something I wanted to talk about. This is a hack. This is a, a ROM hack for the arcade game by this company called General Computer Corporation, which I've talked about before in a previous episode, talking about Miss Pac-Man. And there's a couple links I'll include to... Um, there's an interview with Steve Golson, who worked at GCC, and there's a, a great site that, that No Quarter has mentioned a lot. It's called All in Color for a Quarter, which is uh, all about lots of video games, and they've got a bunch of detail. So there's some more information about Super Missile Attack and uh, Miss Pac-Man as well. But GCC started out life as a bunch of guys at MIT who bought some video games, put it in the in the dorms for people to play, and they uh, their first game was Missile Command. And apparently, they, they were so confident that people would would spend all their quarters at Missile Command that they would give you five quarters for a buck. But eventually, Missile Command stopped being as profitable as it was. So they thought about, well, maybe we can make this harder. So they bought a pretty expensive 6502 development system because the arcade game was also 6502 based and started working on this hack where they disassemble missile command figure out what parts of the code were you know what did what so they'd have this you know the big printouts and they'd annotate it by hand figure out what went where and they wanted to make it harder so they added this ufo which goes back and forth it kind of goes zips back and forth a little bit and then hovers in one place and then it has a laser that shoots straight down and blows up a city and they kind of they kind of changed some other difficulty parameters so it's a little bit harder. But in order to get this new code in there, they had to figure out where they could put it. And they couldn't add any more ROMs. They wanted to have this overlay on the other ROM, the Atari ROM. So they weren't well, they weren't they couldn't use any of the Atari code because they were afraid of copyright infringement. So they wanted to create an overlay ROM that would just put their code over top of certain other bits of the Atari code that they could replace. So they couldn't add any new space on the ROM. They had to figure out where to put it. So they found a couple places to hold some code, and then they they ripped out the self-test code of the arcade game, and that gave them enough space to add all their new features. So they eventually produced this add-on board and said the units cost, the boards cost $30 to develop, and they sold them for $295. They took out full-page ads, color ads in some of the trade magazines, and they sold 1,000 Super Missile Attack boards in two months for like $250,000 profit. So a couple months later, Atari sued them for... $10 $10 million. So they had sort of anticipated a lawsuit from Atari, and that's why they were careful not to use any Atari code. But what they didn't anticipate were the, was the type of lawsuit. They anticipated the copyright infringement suit, and they were confident they could, dis- they could defend that. But they also apparently were sued for trademark dilution and misrepresentation misrep- of origin. So presumably meaning that they thought they were playing an Atari game when it was actually not all Atari. Um, so I guess GCC was issued a restraining order and, and they launched a countersuit against Atari. So I guess Atari was getting some bad press and eventually they sat down and talked with the GCC guys and asked them what they wanted. And the GCC said they wanted just to develop games. So Atari and GCC came to a deal where GCC would develop games for Atari 
they'd get paid according, according to this reference 50,000 a month for two years and but GCC had to give up super missile attack and to not and they had to stop developing developing enhancement boards without permission from the manufacturer unbeknownst to Atari they had Miss Pac-Man already in development yeah it was called crazy auto but they uh I guess probably due to the stuff they got with Atari they contacted Bally Midway and and got the official deal with Bally Midway and then they turned it into Miss Pac-Man I mean there's a whole other story there it's about Namco and Bally Midway and their deals with uh, Miss Pac-Man but that's talked a little bit about that previously but that's yeah for another time. That agreement between GCC and Atari produced the arcade games Food Fight and Quantum. Getting back to the 8-bits and Missile Command, it's a graphics 7 game. So that's the 160 by 96 pixel addressable mode in four colors. So I looked at the display list a little bit, but you know, there's really not much going on in the display list because it's uh, it's not a scrolling game. Although I did notice every third line has a display list interrupt set, so there must be some color change stuff happening. But yeah, I can't figure out I can't figure out the code well enough to figure to know what's going on yet. But um, so there is a modern update to this game. There's um, well, of course there's a, there's the custom version that Rob the Dibble would make you for a three button trackball controller. But that's not in the wild as far as I can tell. But there's an, another hack called Missile Command Plus that uses three bases and a trackball controller if you've got one. But it uses the keys uh, J, K, and L on the keyboard to fire. So you use J for the left base, K for the middle base, and L for the right base. But the regular 8-bit version is a, is a really high-quality port. It's it's an excellent game. I mean, despite the fact that it's not a trackball, it's a jo- joystick game. It's one that I think, for not the, for not for the dark subject matter, I would definitely have for the kids to play, but I think I'll have to wait till they're a little bit older before I start explaining nuclear weapons and destroying cities and stuff. Maybe I can hack the code and change the graphics to, you know, fluffy bunnies and raindrops for the kids. So in one sense, it feels kind of funny reviewing such a classic game like this, because... Most everybody's probably played this, or if if not played it, seen it. But it's an excellent game. It captures both the spirit and the playability of the original, and well worth checking out on the 8-bits. So I guess that'll about do it for the game review and for this episode. Thanks again to Michael Glazer for contributing soft side coverage, and looking forward to more contributions from him. So what the heck is coming up next? We'll have November 81 stuff, and then I think I'm going to even start covering an additional magazine, Computer Gaming World's inaugural issue starts up next month so i'll take a look at that i have no idea what game i'll look at so hey we'll be it'll be a surprise also coming up will be part two of the flight simulator roundup chris olson and i are going to get together and talk about military flight sims as we close out here this is a pokey track version of 99 luft balloon by the german group nana this version was unattributed in the atari sat music archive this is unknown artist this song was a sort of popular anti-war anthem back in the 80s. I think it was released in '84, sort of you know the height of the sort of the height of the Cold War fearfulness about nuclear war. This was played everywhere. This is a there was a German version released in here in the U.S. and it was more popular than the English version. But this one definitely reminds me of sort of the nuclear war fears. Catchy song though. So thanks for listening. You can leave me feedback via email at uh, feedback at playermissile.com or on Twitter. I'm at Atari 8-Bit Games. I'm a member of the Throwback Network, so check out throwbacknetwork.net for all your retro podcasting needs. If you feel like leaving a review over at iTunes, I'd appreciate that. Helps other folks with similar interests find the show. Lots of fun stuff coming up, and thanks again for listening. I will see you next episode.